The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Thank you. Be seated. Well, that song sums up the message today. His word on failing, all our hope is in him. Uh, We come to Romans chapter 9, which is an incredibly uh, difficult text. Sometimes, unfortunately, sometimes people are divided over it and causes division in the church, which is ridiculous. When you consider the whole point of Romans is to bring a unity and humility in the church so that we can join together for the mission of the gospel. So I'm excited. I actually was very encouraged in my recent weeks of studying and looking at this passage. And I pray that you will be encouraged as well. If you remember what Paul has been doing in Romans chapter 1 through 8, he's been telling us the first half has been we are all in rebellion against God and rightly condemned because of our sin. But then God graciously in the gospel saves those who put their faith in Christ. That God justifies the ungodly when they are in Christ. And so it's a beautiful message. And, God, and, and Paul brings this beautiful gospel message to a culminating crescendo in chapter 8. One of the most beautiful chapters of the Bible. And his crescendo is in Romans 8.1, considering all that he says about our condemnation and our sin, but then our justification in Christ. He says in 8.1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he works to this crescendo of 8.28 and 29. And we know that God, subject, causes, verb, All things, not some things, not every now and then, but God, the sovereign God causes all things good, bad, and ugly. God causes all of it to work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. And he goes on to tell this glorious, beautiful promises for believers How awesome is it to know that God promises to use everything in life for your good. God promises he will never fail you. Nothing is meaningless. Everything is infused with his great purposes. And God is for you when you suffer, when you go through difficulties. God is for you. He's on your side. He wants to redeem it all in Christ. He's not against you. And if God is for you, who in the world could be against you? This is what Paul is saying is this massive, sovereign God who created the universe is for you in Christ. And if you've got him for you, then what in the world do you have to worry about? Praise God. All the suffering, pain, hardship, heartache is not meaningless. God uses it for your good and for his great purposes for your life in Christ. And then a turn happens at Romans 9. On the heights, it just descends to the valley in chapters 9, 1 through 5. And this abrupt change in mood. And Paul expresses his grief, his anguish over his brother and sister Jewish family. Who the Jews, for the most part, rejected that Christ. And it grieves Paul. He said, I can't believe this happens. I wish that I could change it for them. 
Though they had so many incredible blessings from God, they rejected the promised one, Christ. And because of that, Paul grieves because he knows all the promises, all chapter 8, that glorious blessing God's word for all that someone's in Christ. He says they are forfeiting those great blessings. Not only does it bring grief to Paul, but it raises a question which Paul addresses today. Israel's unbelief raises the question, did God's word fail? You see, we all go through it when things don't turn out the way we want. When we get a devastating doctor's report or a tragic accident or someone does you wrong, when bad things happen, we question one of two things. We either think, well, God must not be good because this is bad. Or God must not be in this. God's not sovereign. When bad things happen, when people suffer, when we go through difficulties, we are tempted to question two crystal clear teachings of the Bible. God is absolutely sovereign and God is absolutely good. This week, Paul's going to deal with the former. Yes, God is sovereign. And next week, and God is infinitely good. Let's ask the Lord for help. Lord, I ask your help this morning. I pray your spirit will move powerfully through the proclamation of your word. I pray that as we grasp the unbelievable, awesome sovereignty of God, that we will find deep soul rest. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So is God sovereign? Or to put it another way, has God's word failed? Since so many Israelites did not believe, did God's word fail? Quick answer in verse 6 we see, Paul says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. In the midst of his pain and his anguish, his grieving over the unfathomable darkness and chaos and sin and rejection of Jesus by his dear friends whom he loved, he served with, he is broken. Have you ever been broken over someone in their lostness and their rejection and their sin? And it just causes you to weep. In the middle of that, that's exactly where Paul is. In the middle of that, he comes up just enough off the floor with tears-soaked carpets. And he says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. He clings to the sovereignty of God in the midst of his pain and anguish. And that's what I pray we'll be able to do as well. You can trust God. If you hear nothing else today, you can trust God. Paul gives us three different versions of his reasoning for saying this. He states the same thing basically in three different ways. The reason Israel's unbelief does not mean that God's word has failed Israel is because in 6 
the second part of verse 6, because they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And then he states it another way in verse 7, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. And then he clarifies it again in verse 8. He says, that is, it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. So before it gets really complicated, Paul, his point is pretty simple and pretty clear. And here's the logic. God made all these amazing promises to the people of Israel, Abraham's children, by flesh, but massive numbers in Israel did not believe in Jesus. So did God fail to keep his promises to Israel? No. God keeps his promises to his children. God absolutely keeps his promises to his children, but not all everyone in Israel, not everyone born of the flesh to Abraham's descendants, not all of them were his children. And after saying that, the children of flesh are not God's children just by nature of being born to Abraham. He's going to tell us who are. But let me ask you, do we hear this is exactly what he's been saying all throughout Romans? Just because you're born in a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. Just because someone's born in the Jewish people didn't make them a child of God. They were mistakenly thinking, if I'm born into this family, I'm good with God. And he says, no, that's not how it works. You are not a child of God. You are not a Christian simply because you're born into a Christian family. Parents who call themselves Christian. It doesn't make you Christian. That's not what it means to be a child of God. And after saying what it's not, he says that being a child of God is being a child of the promise. The children of promise are regarded as descendants, he says. And this is the point Paul has been making all through Romans. God's children are the children of promise, not the children of the flesh. The children of promise refers to those who have faith in the promised seed of Abraham, Jesus. Or to use the language of Romans 8, 28 and 29, the few verses ahead of this chapter, the children children of God are the children of promise who are those who love God, those whom God foreknew, those whom God predestined and called and justified and glorified. Those are the children of promise. Those are the children of God. And God will not fail his children. So let's review Paul's logic thus far. God made all these amazing promises to these people of Israel by flesh. But a massive number of them did not believe in Christ. This raises the question, does their unbelief mean that God's word has failed? Did God fail to keep his promises to them? Answer, absolutely not. God keeps his word to his children. Those who did not believe were not his children. The children of promise are those who believe in Jesus Christ, the promised one. God keeps his promises to all of them. 
For all of them whom he foreknew, he also predestined, which guaranteed that he would call them to Christ and he would justify them in Christ and he will certainly glorify them in Christ. God is sovereignly faithful to every single one of his children. You can trust God in the midst of the worst anguish of your soul. Their unbelief is not a failure on God's part. To support his point, Paul refers to two Old Testament passages. The first is the narrative of Isaac. The second is the narrative of Jacob and Esau. And both these narratives come from the book of Genesis. And just like in Hebrews, when he's quoting the Old Testament, I just could trace right along with what Paul is writing in Genesis as well. You can see he's reading Genesis and he's quoting Genesis 9, chapters 9 through 11 of Romans is just filled with Old Testament quotes. He's reading his Bible and he's writing about this God that he sees in your Old Testament Bible. Let's begin by looking at the Abrahamic promise to which Paul referred to in verse 8. After humanity brought condemnation upon themselves in their rebellion against God, Genesis 1, God is who? He's introduced you to God in the opening of the Bible. God is creator. The one who spoke with his word everything into existence. If that's not sovereign, a definition of sovereignty, I don't know what there is. That's as big as it gets. The very existence of everything and everyone came from God speaking it into existence. And then... Humanity, instead of enjoying all the crazy blessings of God, rebelled against God and rightfully deserved condemnation. Romans 1 through 3, 4, 5. All of us are guilty in our rebellion against God. But what does this sovereign God do looking on this sinful, rebellious humanity? He graciously says, I'm going to restore all blessings. He comes and makes a promise, an unconditional, one-sided promise. Here's what I'm going to do, God says to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3. Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God says, that's what I'm going to do through you, Abraham. And then in Genesis 15, 5 and 6, we read, And God took Abraham outside And he said, now look toward the heavens, count the stars if you are able to count them. And God said to Abraham, so shall your descendants be. Then Abraham believed in the Lord and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. So God graciously promised to restore his blessings on condemned humanity on fallen earth. Through the promised seed of Abraham. The problem though, Abraham and Sarah couldn't have kids. Is God going to be able to keep his word? He just promised them a kid. She can't have kids. It doesn't help that they're 80, 90 years old. So is God sovereign or not? Can he deliver on his promises? 
So he promised an old barren woman and her old husband that they would have a seed and their seed would be as countless as the stars and their seed would restore God's blessings on earth. I hope this works out. Because everything hinges on this seed to an old barren couple. Now in the rest of the story we learn this promised seed refers first of all to the countless number of Israel born by flesh, Israelites, Jews, and one Jew in particular, the promised seed, Jesus, would be the one through whom all restoration comes. Is God going to be able to deliver the goods? That's the question of the whole book of Genesis. Over and over and over. What about this seed? This is the promise or the word of God being called into question by Israel's rejection of Jesus. The promised seed who came from the promised seed. Countless as the stars. This would naturally raise the question, has God's word failed? The very seeds, if you will, of God rejected the seed who came from their own. They rejected them. Oh, is God's promises. Can we take them to the bank? Is he faithful? Everything he's been saying to you that is yours in Christ hinges on the answer to this question. This is massively relevant to your life. Is this all a joke? Will God really, when I meet him, say you are not condemned because you're in Christ? Or will he keep that word? Is God really going to take all the suffering that just rips our lives apart and show us one day how incredibly meaningful it was and how good it was for us? Is there really purpose in all the chaos that we experience in this life? Everything hinges on this question. Has God's word failed? Will he keep his promises to us? Let's look at the Old Testament narratives that he goes to to give support for his answer. Yes, God is faithful. In Romans 9, 7, Paul goes on to say this. He says, but through through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Here Paul's quoting from the Isaiah narratives in Genesis 18.10 and Genesis 12.21 or 21.12. Encourage you to go home, read Genesis. It's amazing how it just opens up Romans and you just will love it. These narratives force us though to grapple with the sovereignty of God. So we're going to read through these narratives to help you understand what Paul's reading as he writes these things. After God promised Abraham and Sarah a seed, they did what we all do. Well, wait a minute. This is impossible. How are we going to have a kid? Sarah's barren. We better do something. Bail God out of this pickle he's gotten himself in. 
And so Sarah says, Abraham, go sleep with the maidservant Hagar. And Hagar has a son, and his name is Ishmael. Good thing, huh? I'm glad they bailed God out. God says, no. Genesis 17, 19, no. That's, that's in the Bible. No. But Sarah, your wife will bear you a son. Sarah, your wife, not, I didn't say, I didn't promise Ishmael. I didn't promise Hagar. And I said Sarah, and I meant Sarah. Sarah, your wife will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him, not with Ishmael, with him, for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And then in 1810, God promised the next year at this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Now, upon hearing this news, Sarah laughed. Because she was old and barren. But the Lord said, is anything too difficult for the Lord? And that's the point. Obviously, the answer is no. Nothing is impossible with the Lord. What is impossible for man is possible by God. I think it's very important that we keep reading through Genesis. Because it gives us the context of the verses which Paul is quoting from. To understand where he's reading, what he means, what's infused in these verses that he's quoting from in Genesis. And when we read this section of Genesis, we see the sovereignty of God on display over and over. Sovereignty simply means that God is God. He's creator. He does whatever he wants to do, whenever, however, to whomever, whatever. He's God. I don't know how else to put it in fancy words. He's God. We're not. That's the point. That's the point of the Bible. And in Genesis 18, 18 and 19, it says, Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation. This is right after the quotes he's just reading. Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed, for I have chosen him. I didn't choose anyone else. I chose Abraham to do this through, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that... The Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Do you hear what is going on in the context? God is sovereign, but it does not mean that man's life is meaningless. Instead, it infuses it with great meaning. Abraham was chosen and he must, be cho- he, he must teach his kids to be obedient so that God can do all that he chose to do in and through Abraham. Everything in your life is finding meaning and purpose in this sovereignty of God when everything in our peanut brains think it's the opposite. I think when I first heard God's sovereignty, I thought, well, then what's the point of praying? What's the point of doing anything? What is the meaning of all of this? And this exact opposite, what's the point of praying? What's the meaning of anything? If none of it is dependent, I can't count on anything if God's not sovereign. Why pray if God's not sovereign? I don't know if he can answer it. Why put my hope in Christ if he's not sovereign? I don't know if when I get there, it's going to be good. 
You have to know that sovereignty of God brings meaning and purpose and peace and rest. So wrestle with the sovereignty of God. Grapple with it. And find rest in it. Don't think it means... See, the problem is we think false conclusions. We think God's sovereign, therefore don't evangelize him. Are you kidding? Read the Bible. Why evangelize if he's not sovereign? I have no hope that it's going to work out for you. But if God's sovereign, you go to Africa and you know people will be saved. If God's sovereign, why be responsible? What are you talking about? You're answering to a sovereign God. It does not render evangelism meaningless. It does not render prayer meaningless. God works through your prayers. It gives meaning to the very things that we think it steals meaning from. The problem is not thinking too much about God's sovereignty. We're not thinking enough about it. We're not thinking deep enough to understand past the struggle. There's great joy and rest in that God. Is anything too difficult for God? No way. So he says, I chose Abraham so that he may teach his kids to obey, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he spoke. There's no contradiction there. Who was it, uh, Spurgeon, who says, how do you reconcile the sovereignty of God and the, and the responsibility of man? He says, I don't reconcile friends. They're not an enemy with each other. They're not an angst. They're friends. God works sovereignly through our real Decisions and prayers and evangelism and life. It gives meaning and purpose to us as believers in Christ. Let's continue reading in Genesis because, again, it raises a very important important question about the sovereignty of God. In the very next verse, if you're just reading right along, the very next verses in Genesis, God says, Hey, Abraham, you know what? I'm about to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. It's just a strange passage. You read it and it's just like, where did that come from? He's talking about all this. And he says, Hey, you want to know what I'm about to do? And Abraham's like, what are you about to do? He's like, I'm about to wipe out. Look down this mountain. Look down. I'm about to wipe that city out. And Abraham's like, do what? And he's going, Lot's down there. His nephew, Lot's down there. And so we ask, well, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Then Abraham answers his own question. He says, far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Write that down. Genesis 18.25. I have found that verse, the most helpful verse in the Bible, when I am ministering to people going through all kinds of pain. It's not your theological answer that's going to make them feel better. Well, you need to believe in a sovereign God. Like, really? Get out of my face. But when you meet the maker... And you see clearly what God's been up to. You're not going to say, well, that was not very good. You're going to fall on your face and worship him. Wow, what a glorious God. He's the judge of the earth. He couldn't be judged if he's not just. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? This is a very important interchange 
in the context of Paul's quote. So in these verses, we learn God is sovereign. His sovereignty does not eliminate man's genuine responsibility. Instead, it actually gives meaning and purpose to every part of our lives. Also, we see, as we will see much more next week, God is just in all his dealings. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? If he wasn't just, he couldn't be judge of all the earth. Let's keep going in Genesis. Of all the people in history, God chose Abraham so that Abraham would command his children, so that the Lord could fulfill his covenant promises through him. And then God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. After Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed, spared Lot. So no, he did not destroy the righteous with the wicked. He spares Lot and his family. And then the birth of Isaac is recorded in Genesis. And upon the birth of Isaac, God says, through Isaac your seed shall be named. God kept his word. God fulfilled his promise. God is faithful and just. He promised Abraham a seed. And upon a miracle of all miracles, despite all opposition to it, he delivered the seed of Abraham. Over and over in Genesis, you see this seed is threatened through barren woman after barren woman, through oppression, through famine, through all kinds of scheming and chaos and sin and rebellion and craziness that people do. God is faithfully fulfilling His promises and keeping His word, promising, delivering that promised seed in the midst of it all. God can be trusted with every ounce of your hopes. Next, Paul quotes from Jacob and Esau in the narrative. In Romans 9, 10 through 13, he says this. He says, not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had, done, had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob, I love that Esau I hated. To continue to make his point, his point that God is sovereignly keeping his word, Paul points to the Jacob and Esau narrative in Genesis 25, 21. As the story of Genesis continues, Abraham died, but before he died, he passed his blessing on to Isaac. Go home and read these narratives. They're awesome. He blesses Isaac. Not Ishmael. God chose Isaac. Isaac grew up. And the narrative is very careful to point out. God chose Rebekah to be Isaac's wife. Go hang out at the well. Here she comes. She's going to do this. Oh, there she is. God chose Rebekah. Guess what? Rebekah's barren. What are you thinking? You don't choose a barren woman to carry on the seed. Unless you're trying to make a point. This is not man's doing. This is God delivering on his promises. So once again, the present concern is can God keep his word? Will God fail to deliver this promised seed? Will God keep his promise regarding the seed of Abraham? Of course, the answer is yes. So knowing God is sovereign... Knowing Rebecca is barren, knowing they're supposed to bear the seed, what does he do? So it's meaningless. Why pray? No. 
Listen to what he does in Genesis 25, 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife. God, open her womb. I know you are working. Because she was barren and the Lord answered him. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. His sovereignty, his sovereign purposes gives power to our prayers. Quite the opposite of what we want to think it does. She conceived twins. That's powerful prayers. Not one, but two. She conceived twins and the Lord said the following to her. Some of which is quoted by Paul in Romans. Two nations are in your womb. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. In quoting this, Paul says, Romans 9.11, For though the twins were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his Choice would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. So Paul is emphasizing God's sovereign purpose, God's sovereign choice over and against any merit on the part of Jacob and Esau. This Israel and and Edomites, Israel being chosen over the Edomites, Jacob chosen over Esau, had nothing to do with Jacob and Esau. It had only to do with God. Paul says, how could it have anything to do with them? They weren't even born yet. They could have done good to deserve it or to earn it or to merit it. God's choice to make Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel, the stronger nation, and God's choice to make Esau, the older, serve the younger nation, had absolutely nothing to do with Jacob and Esau. It was solely based on him, the one who calls. So Paul is very effectively making his point again. God is sovereignly keeping his word. You can count on God. To further illustrate this point, in verse 13, Paul quotes Malachi 1.3. I'm going to read. He says, just as it's written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. I want to read Malachi 1, 1 through 4. And I want you to see where he's drawing from these Old Testament texts, the context, and see what he's reading and understand what he's getting at. Malachi 1 says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. To Israel, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? He says, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Declares the Lord, yet I've loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. And I have made his, Esau's mountains, a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom, Esau, Edom, though Edom says we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down and men will call them the wicked territory, the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. So first, let me address the language, this hate, love, hate. That's a Hebrew idiom. 
Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. It doesn't mean that God had sinful hate towards individuals in that sense. It's just like when Jesus says, if you love me, you've got to hate your own life. It's a contrast to make a point. But let's not miss the point. The point is that God is sovereignly keeping his word. Before Jacob, who is Israel, and Esau, who is the Edomites, before they were even born, God chose Jacob, Israel, over Esau, Edomites. They both behaved wickedly. Read your Bible. Israel was wicked. Edomites were wicked. But God chose to bless Israel despite their wickedness. How is that fair? You're right, it's not fair. That doesn't sound fair, does it? You're right, it's not fair. God should not have blessed Israel at all. But he's gracious. He's merciful. When you go back and read these narratives in the book of Genesis, it's abundantly clear that God is the all-powerful, supreme, gracious, merciful, just creator, the sovereign who is doing exactly what he wants to do, exactly when he wants to do it, exactly how he wants to do it. As Abraham said, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly. So with all this in mind, we can understand Paul's point. Israel's unbelief does not mean God is failing to keep his word to Abraham. God is doing exactly what he promised Abraham he would do. God's faithfulness does not depend on man. God's faithfulness depends on God's Faithfulness. Of all those people who were created, he chose Abraham. Of all of Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, God saved all whom he intended to save. Whether, he, whether one wants to emphasize God's choice in that matter or one wants to emphasize man's faith in that matter, both are necessary and both are true. Either way, we are confronted with Paul's point that God is saving all whom he intends to save and that does not include everyone. It only includes those who put their faith in the seed of Abraham. So no, God's word has not failed. He will judge And condemn those who are not in Christ. And he will save, absolutely save those who are in Christ. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And for those God foreknew, he predestined and he called and he justifies and he glorifies. Coming to terms with the sovereignty of God in general is hard. As it relates to salvation, it can be extraordinarily hard. It was for me at first. 
as I've already alluded to, when I first got this concept of God being sovereign, not even, not even as it relates to individual salvation, just in general, that God is sovereign and it doesn't depend on me. At first, it rocked my world. I remember sitting at the park in my car by myself at AC Steer because I just drove off. I couldn't figure out what to do. And I just sat there and I just racked my brain. And it was a season of wrestling with God. Why pray then? Why do anything? How can, how can any of this make sense if God is sovereign? But let me tell you what came out from that. I finally found rest in God. I want that for everybody. God is huge. And he's doing exactly what he promises you to do. Put your faith in Christ. And he is for you. That huge, massive creator of the universe is aligned for your good in Christ. It feels Every ounce of pain with purpose. It fills everything with meaning. Empowers your prayer and your evangelism. It does the exact opposite of what your heart resists and thinks it will do. I don't know where you are today, but I know personally, because I've been getting a lot more prayer requests from you as I've been sending out emails and trying to get your prayer requests and know what's going on in your life, I know there's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of things going on in our lives. Find rest in a sovereign God. He is for you. He loves you in Christ. Some of you aren't in Christ. Call on the mercies of God right now. It's found by trusting Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, sovereign God of the universe, may our prideful hearts not resist and reject you. You have aligned all your grace, piled it up in Christ. For those who will embrace Christ, will receive the flood of your mercies and grace. Your word never fails. You are faithful. God, I pray that you will move in our hearts today. Give us a grand vision of you and your power and your might and your sovereignty and every ounce of our prideful hearts that is resisting it. May we lay that at the altar and find peace and rest. Because if you're not sovereign, I got no hope. But in your sovereignty, we find peace hope that anchors our soul. We find meaning in the 
suffering, we find purpose in the pain, we find power in our prayer and evangelism because we know you are going to keep your word. All who are in Christ will be glorified. As to your glory, we sing these songs. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.